Let the scriptures speak for themselves. Alright guys, uh, what is up? We are in Mark chapter 14, uh, part 2. This will be covering verse uh, 32 uh, through uh, 70. Getting my microphone over here, a little discombobulated. Um, this chapter goes all the way to the 70s, um, so it'll close out with uh, 72 verses. And uh, we'll be talking about uh, Peter's denial, uh, the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy previously in Mark chapter 14, part 1. Uh, likewise, we'll see the trial of Jesus um, along with the arrest of Jesus and uh, his time in the Garden of Gethsemane preceding um, his, uh, his arrest. And so if you watched uh, Mark chapter 14, uh, part 1, and I would highly encourage you to check that out, what we saw is that uh, Jesus doesn't partake of the entire tradition of the Passover uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, however you want to call it. He doesn't partake of the entire tradition, but rather he uh, chooses to forego either the third or the fourth cup, seemingly because this cup of praise is in direct contrast with the, the cup that we're going to see here in Mark chapter 14, part 2 the latter half of Mark 14, um, he doesn't take that cup because he's about to drink a different cup. And so it would be, I think, wrong and um, mislead many if he had partaken of that cup. And and he's trying to also foreshadow to his disciples what's about to go on. So with all that being said, let's jump right into uh, verse 32. To start off, I'd like to show you a picture of Gethsemane. Again, um, I've had the grand opportunity of going there myself. And so if you look at this picture, if you can see, if you're listening on podcast, just listen, and I'll explain it to you audibly. But you have the uh, Temple of the Rock, the Dome of the Rock, which now is seated uh, right beside where the, the Holy of Holies, where the Temple of Jerusalem would have stood in our day if it was not destroyed in 70 AD. So when you see a picture of Jerusalem and you see the shiny gold uh, building, that's the, uh, the mosque that lies there. And so for the uh, the arrest of Jesus, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so if you could picture this with me, it's kind of like a hill. There's a hill and at the bottom of the hill, uh, towards the bottom, you have the Garden of Gethsemane, where the traditional site of uh, where scholars and archaeologists think Jesus would have been. You have that close to the bottom of the... Uh, the foot of this foothill, and then you have the little valley, and then across the valley you have the temple. So if you're looking at pictures, you can kind of see uh, the Mount of Olives here in this bottom corner where all the graves are, and then down this slope, down this hill, um, towards the bottom and to the right, uh, if you're looking at the picture, you have the Garden of Gethsemane. I'll show you a, a quick picture um, of this garden. It's very beautiful. So now when we're looking at it, it's very elaborate. I'm not entirely sure what it w would have looked like in Jesus' day, uh, maybe for the Passion of the Christ directed by Mel Gibson. Maybe they did their homework. Maybe they didn't. I don't know. Um, so that might be a better representation. Today, it's obviously extremely well kept and uh, has the same type of trees, I believe, um, that it would have had in Jesus' day. 
And of course, there's a, a, a very beautiful church built over it. I believe it's a, a sworn, solemn silence in that church, so you're not allowed to really talk. So very interesting. So that's the Garden of Gethsemane. Just wanted to show you a few photos. Again, to remind you uh, from part one of Mark 14, it seems that Jesus went to an undisclosed location because he foresaw uh, that Judas Iscariot was going to betray him. And then after Judas Iscariot left within the middle of the Passover ritual, Jesus then um, in between the, um, or maybe after the final cup, um, he left to take his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. And again, this might have been to further extend the time period before he was betrayed so he'd have more time to pray as we see him taking in the garden. Or likewise, um, to just try and prepare his disciples, which as we're going to see, it goes terrible. Um, so we pick up with verse 32. It says, Then they went to a place called Gethsemane, and uh, Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. So he takes the entire group of the disciples, most likely the 12 here, and then he tells them to sit there and he's going to go pray. Then it says in verse 33, he took Peter, James, and John, the infamous inner circle. If you've been watching this gospel series on according to Mark, uh, we've talked about that extensively. So he tells the 12 to stay there, but he tells the three to come with him. Um, He says he took Peter, James, and John with him and became very troubled and distressed. So we see Jesus showing this uh, revealing. He's taken his mask off. He's showing him this raw emotion of how he's really feeling on the inside that it seems that was hidden from the rest of the disciples. He said to them, the inner three that are alone now, as he took them many times, My soul is deeply grieved, even to the point of death. Remain here and stay alert. So he takes the 12 and tells them to wait. Then he takes the three further. But even the three, the inner circle, he does not allow them to go all the way with him to the place where he goes for privacy of prayer. And so um, the three disciples are left alone, but he encourages them to stay alert or also to pray, as we'll see later in the text. So Um, it's interesting that the three are encouraged to pray while the others are just encouraged to wait. It says, uh, verse 35, going a little farther, he threw himself to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour would pass from him. So Jesus is clearly distraught, distressed. He he knows uh, clearly that it is the time of the year for lambs to be sacrificed. And he's in on the Isaiah 53 prophecy. He knows that he is the sacrifice. And so he's carrying that weight, that fear, that human emotion uh, to the greatest degree. In verse 36, it says, He said, Abba, which is Aramaic for father, Abba, father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Um, I just wanted to read a a study note and a personal note. Um, I put that a a cup was often used symbolically in biblical imagery to depict blessing or wrath, depending on the context. Also very likely a reference to the reason Jesus would not partake of the third or fourth cup of praise blessing um, as he was going to shortly be called to suffering and death. Um, So I just wanted to mention that. 
And also they had a helpful study note in the NET study Bible. I just wanted to read. They said this cup alludes to the wrath of God that Jesus would experience in the form of suffering and death for us. And they they gave us a few um, footnotes to other biblical passages that speak of this. I just want to briefly read them. Psalm 11, verse 6, May the Lord rain down burning coals and brimstone on the wicked. A whirlwind is what they deserve. Um, Chapter 75, verse 8, For the Lord holds in his hand a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices and pours it out. Surely all the wicked of the earth will slurp it up and drink it to its very last. It's a very graphic depiction of his wrath. Uh, Wake up, wake up, get up, O Jerusalem. You drank the cup. The Lord passed to you, which was full of his anger. Uh, This is Isaiah 51, verse 17. We could go on and on and on. Also, we have um, um, in the Psalms, David himself says that his cup runs over, but in that context, it's blessing. And I think this is just in line with the Old Testament covenant. You either have God's blessing or, or his wrath. It's very black and white. There's really no middle ground. You either are walking in obedience or disobedience. And so when we see cup here, that's what Jesus is talking about. He didn't have a literal drink with him or anything. He's saying, take this cup from me because he realizes uh, what some theologians would call the penal substitutionary atonement. It's that he's about to receive the cup of wrath that God has on behalf of mankind. And he realizes that he's about to drink that that uh, that sin upon himself. Not that he's partaking of the sin, but he's going to take the punishment for that sin. Um, and it's going to be in the sense of his, his crucifixion and death. So, um, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. So this is Jesus's fervent prayer. And we're going to see he's going to continue to pray this throughout the night before he's arrested. Spoiler alert. We, we find out what the Father's will is, and it's in line with Isaiah 53. But um, he says, take this cup away from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. That's such a helpful verse for every Christian. Um, what we pray and what we seek, ultimately, we're, we are to humbly and openly and with honor bring our prayer requests before the Lord. But ultimately, our desire should be that it's it's not that our will is what we seek first and foremost, but rather the will of the Father, the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, So that's just a helpful tip. So he asked for this cup to be taken away, but he also in his prayer recognizes that he would rather follow the Father's will than his own if, if they seem to clash, and they do clash. So verse 37, we pick up, then he came out and found them after this intimate, uh, vigorous prayer, that he came out and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake for one hour? Stay awake and pray that you will not fall into temptation. He says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I just wanted to read another reference. Uh, This is from Luke chapter 22, the parallel account from the synoptic gospel. He says, Simon, Simon, pay attention Satan has demanded to have you all to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. What we have here in Luke chapter 22 is another account of another prophecy that Jesus spoke over Peter um, that he would not only fall away as he prophesied for all of them in that time of trouble, 
but also he prophesied that Peter would turn back and he encouraged him when he did turn back, even though Peter didn't want to believe any of it was going to happen, he encouraged him to strengthen the brothers. Um, so I just wanted to read that separate account. So Jesus like literally points to this scenario as something that the devil has plotted, something that the devil has schemed, something that the adversary himself is about to wreak havoc upon. Um, reminds me very much so of C.S. Lewis's um, Chronicles of Narnia uh, with with uh, Aslan who gives himself up according to the plan of the witch. Uh, very interesting parallel there. But um, stay awake, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And then Jesus tells him this, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now we could probably go a lot of uh, directions with that. All I'll say is that often we are at war with ourselves concerning doing what is right. It's not, it's not often that we don't know what is right, um, but rather the, the challenge is not in knowing what's right, but it's in doing what's right. And what I want you to, to recognize here, again, this probably has some, some deep philosophical um, connections here concerning the human spirit, the human flesh. I'm not going to get into any of that. Um, I'm really undecided and unsure of, of a lot of those things concerning dichotomy or trichotomy of the body and soul or body, soul, and spirit. Um, so we'll just leave that there. But um, recognize that Jesus is telling Peter that there's a reality that although Peter in his spirit, in the sense that he's saying, Jesus, I won't, I won't fail you for anything, even death. Well, there's a willingness there. There's also this warring desire of fear and cowardice that's going to fear the the suffering of the body that's going to fear the the um, ultimate death there's a desire in human nature to want to uh, per- persevere and want to um, continue to cling on to your life and so that fight um, is one of the strongest human desires and, and Peter would have to pray against that and, and pray to strengthen himself and that's what the other thing I want you to see from this verse is Jesus is encouraging Peter not that he would avoid temptation, but rather he's encouraging Peter that he would be strengthened by his prayers to God um, to, to go through this temptation and trial and to come out uh, faithful. And so he says, stay awake, pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 39, he went away again and prayed the same thing. So Jesus comes to them, rebukes them, um, because they're asleep. It is the middle of the night. They have had an exhausting week, but at the same time, things are coming to a peak here. And so Jesus leaves them um, and for a second time goes back. Uh, and it says he prayed the same thing, verse 39. I already mentioned that earlier a few minutes ago, but I just want you to recognize Jesus is really modeling for us the persistent widow parable. He, he's really showing us what it means to pursue the the father in prayer and so he prays the same thing verse 40 we pick up he came again when he came again he found them sleeping they could not keep their eyes open the the little literal greek is because their eyes were weighed down they they were so sleepy and they couldn't stay awake even though it was the peak of of the passion of the christ they could not keep their eyes open and they did not know what to tell him. Uh, the text seemed to speak of here of some embarrassment. Jesus catches him for the second time sleeping in his most troubling hour. 
one of the synoptic gospels pictures him as sweating blood. And so Jesus is most severely distressed. He's opened up to the inner circle. He's shown them some vulnerability of how much he's really struggling. And they're falling asleep. Think of the the, um, weight of abandonment Jesus is feeling in this scenario. And so he goes, he prays the same thing. He comes back and they're asleep and they're embarrassed. It says in verse 41, he came a third time. And said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Uh, There's an interesting note here. He says, enough of that. The hours come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. They had two interesting notes here in the NET Study Bible. Um, It seems like there's a possible um, rendering um, that uh, Jesus could have been sarcastic with him here. That may be what's going on. Mark's gospel is the most blunt. So I would expect to see that here. And uh, I'm not really sure whether Jesus was being sarcastic or not. But to be sure, he's extremely frustrated because um, he's now gone to pray with the Father and come back three times. And three times he has found them asleep um, at the most crucial hour. And so um, he says, are you still sleeping and resting? Uh, Enough of that. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us go. Look, my betrayer is approaching. So if you recall, early in Mark chapter 14, part one, we talked of Jesus sitting around as Leonardo da Vinci depicts in the Last Supper, the infamous painting. Um, We discussed how of the 12 disciples, Jesus was ambiguous as to which particular disciple was the one who would betray him. But what he did reveal was that it was one of the 12. And when we say disciples following Jesus, we could be talking about mass crowds. But when he talks about the particular disciples, he's usually speaking, excuse me, is usually speaking to the 12. But then there's also scenarios when he's speaking to the three. And that's the way Jesus did his ministry, the masses, the 12 and three. I think it's a great model for Christians. But nevertheless, Um, Jesus tells the group of disciples, he seemingly has come back to the three and then gone back to the entirety, um, at least to the three, maybe to the 12. But he says, look, uh, the son of man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go look. And so if you can imagine the scenario, he's come back the third time. They've been asleep and he scolds them. He's like, look, you guys have been sleeping here and wake up. I'm about to be arrested right now. I'm, I'm literally right now going to be betrayed. And you guys have been spending the preceding time sleeping. He's extremely frustrated. And he says, look, my betrayer is approaching. Again, as I just referenced Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper, they don't know who the betrayer is. It's still a mystery. Uh, but they do know it's, it's uh, one of the inner disciples, one of the 12. Verse 43, we pick up. Right away, while Jesus was still speaking, what he just said, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. Now we know this is the infamous Judas Iscariot. And he has arrived, and having schemed with the scribes and the Pharisees, has brought a crowd. It says, with with, uh, him came a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent by the chief priests and experts in the law and elders. So the entire uh, Jewish judicial judicial, uh, system 
is cracking down on Jesus. There's a lot going on here. One, it's in the middle of the night, as Jesus is going to go on to point out the uh, the crookedness of what's going on here. He's going to speak against, but they're also armed. Um, and so they mean business. They are here. And Judas is leading this mob, um, this armed mob to Jesus. We pick up verse 44. Now the betrayer, which is just a, another name for Judas, had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. So Judas in his scheming with the chief priests, the experts in the law, the elders, um, they had decided beforehand that the way that he would secretly give this signal would be a kiss to Jesus. That way Judas Iscariot could keep this a secret from the other um, apostles, the other disciples, and that Jesus would be unaware. The only people who would know would be Judas Iscariot and the uh, the leaders. And so Judas comes up to him as is common in their culture um, and in their scenario, their relationship, that he would kiss Jesus on the cheek. But the reality is that uh, they had planned before that Judas was going to pick Jesus out of the crowd with this kiss. So it says in verse 45, when Judas arrived, he went up to Jesus immediately and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. So Judas is identifying Jesus. He yells out, Rabbi, catch this. He's doing this so the mob behind him can recognize who's the rabbi, who is Jesus. And he kisses him. It says, verse 46, then they took hold of him, him being Jesus, and arrested him. I wanted to point out um, this parallel account. We're going to see this scene right here with swords and and a brief uh, skirmish that happens between the disciples and the angry mob that's approaching Jesus in the middle of the night. According to uh, the suffering servant, the Orthodox Bible study companion, two of them have swords. We see this in Luke 22, verse 38. Uh, So they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. Then he told him it is enough. One of whom was Peter, who has a sword. And it says he drew it and hit the slave of the high priest and took off his ear. Mark, writing the gospel in Rome, thinks it best at, uh, even at that time, years later, not to mention who it was who made the attack. He conceals Peter's name and simply identifies the attacker as a certain one of the bystanders. Um, No doubt Peter meant to take off his head, not just his ear, but after all, he was a fisherman, not a soldier. So, Again, I need to mention this in case you haven't watched the entirety of the Gospel of Mark series. The Jews were very much so confused on the nature of the coming of the Messiah. They had confounded the two comings of Christ, which were hidden and dimly lit in the text, into one coming of Christ. And so they had recognized the kingly entry of Christ while disregarding the suffering servant of Christ who was to come. And so they didn't understand that Jesus to give up his life was going to do so willingly. And Jesus was trying to tell them during his ministry that he was going to be killed. He was going to give himself up to be delivered. But for the most part, the disciples did not understand this. They had not caught on to this. 
They had missed the prophetic writings of the Old Testament and likewise had missed the plain speech of Jesus right in front of them. And so uh, Peter and one other disciple is armed with the sword. They're ready for Jesus to be taken because they're ready to fight and give their life. But what they are not ready for is for Jesus to willingly lay his life down, even though he's told them that's what he's going to do. They don't understand it. We've seen this repeatedly in the Gospel of Mark. So Judas arrives, kisses him on the cheek, identifies him as the rabbi. It says they took hold of him, being Jesus, and arrested him. And the moment they do that, it says one of the bystanders, which we know is Peter, drew his sword and struck the high priest's slave, cutting off his ear. And so I just wanted to read two of the parallel accounts, one in John 18, the other in Luke 22. John 18, verse 10 and 11 says this, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, pulled it out and struck the high priest's slave, cutting off his right ear. It even identifies the name of the slave uh, in a parenthetical note. Now the slave's name was Malchus. Um, In verse 11, it says, But Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Again, they've radically misunderstood. Some of this is because it was concealed by Jesus. Remember, when Jesus cries, Father, let this cup pass from me, no one else is there to hear that. They don't know. He's hidden it. It's only found in the prophecies and only found in the blunt teaching of Jesus. But at the same time, many of these things were concealed. Also, to show you the other parallel account in the synoptics, Luke 22, verse 50. Then one of uh, them, which it doesn't identify Peter, struck the high priest slave, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus said, enough of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. So I wanted to read those two separate accounts because we get one, the identification of Peter from John, but two, from Luke, we get the the concept that uh, and the reality, the event that Jesus healed this slave's ear. Um, think of how hard it would be to be in a mob to arrest a man who healed your ear. I don't know. I would just have a hard time doing that. Um, but what I want you to capture is the confusion and the chaos. Okay, recognize that Jesus is on one mission and his disciples, even the closest, are on a different mission. Jesus is trying to lay down his life as a sacrifice. His disciples are trying to defend him to the death, to not be killed, but rather to die so that he might live. But the crazy thing is that Jesus wants to die that they might live. I love that. Love that. When Judas arrived, he goes up, he kisses Jesus, says they took hold of him, they arrested him, arrested Jesus. One of the bystanders, as we just talked about, is Peter, drew his sword, struck the high priest slave, cutting off his ear. Uh, We see in the other synoptic, Jesus heals this ear of the slave, Malchus. Verse 48 of Mark 14, Jesus said to them, have you come with swords and clubs to arrest me like you would an outlaw? Again, Jesus has not been leading a a violent revolt, as was common in their day um, against the Roman government. But rather, Jesus, for the most part, with the exception of the uh, cleansing of the temple, Jesus has led a very peaceful ministry um, in the sense that uh, the only harsh things that's been done other than the cleansing of the temple has been uh, his 
choice of words, but Jesus has not been leading a physical revolt while many were in their day. So Jesus confronts the fact that, look, and I'll just read the rest of what he says. Jesus said to them, have you come with swords and clubs to arrest me like you would an outlaw? Day after day, I was with you teaching in the temple courts. Yet you did not arrest me. But this happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Now, we're going to talk about what scriptures he's talking about, which are profound. I love it. It's so great. Isaiah 53. Um, I can't, uh, can't overstate the importance of that. But, but what Jesus is saying here is, don't you recognize, don't you see the dirtiness, the evil of what you're doing? You're arresting me. You're, you're coming after me with clubs and swords. And you're doing it in the middle of the night when I've done everything that I've done, Jesus says, publicly. It's in the temple courts. It's, it's every single day. But because they're doing what's evil, they're hiding it and they're doing it in the middle of the night and they're coming ready to enforce it with physical violence. So Jesus also says, as I just mentioned, but this happened so that, and Jesus gives an explanation for why things are taking place this way. He says that the scriptures would be fulfilled. I couldn't help but think of uh, Isaiah 53, verse 8 through 12. And I just want to read this to you. This is a prophecy of the suffering servant which Jesus fulfills in his lifetime, which we'll see in this very um, chapter in the second part. Verse uh, 8 of chapter 53 of Isaiah. He was led away after an unjust trial, but who even cared? Indeed, he was cut off from the land of the living. Because of the rebellion of his own people, he was wounded. They intended to bury him with criminals, But he ended up in a rich man's tomb because he had committed no violent deeds, nor had he spoken deceitfully, though the Lord desired to crush him and make him ill. Once restitution is made, he will see descendants and enjoy long life. And the Lord's purpose will be accomplished through him. Having suffered, he will reflect on his own work He will be satisfied when he understands what he has done. My servant will acquit many, for he carried their sins. So I will assign him a portion with the multitudes. He will define the spoils of victory with the powerful because he willingly submitted to death and was numbered with the rebels when he lifted up the sin of many and intervened on behalf of the rebels." I absolutely love that. Um, hope you recognize all of those prophecies. There's many prophecies just in the, the small collection of verses I read there, and there's more that we'll cover in this chapter. But even just in that small collection of verses, there's multiple prophetic verses that are fulfilled to the T. He was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, who was a rich man. He was uh, silently um, silent when he was accused. Um, there's... I could just, let me just go through these very briefly. Um, he, he was led away um, after an unjust trial. Literally an unjust trial took place. He was judged in the middle of the night as we're about to see. And they didn't do it uh, legally and lawfully. Um, they didn't intend to bury him with criminals. He was crucified along with criminals. Um, he ended up in a rich man's tomb. Um, he had committed no violent deeds. He had not spoken deceitfully. Um, Again, we see here in verse 10, as I'm reading through Isaiah 53, 
We see, though the Lord desired to crush him and make him ill, we see what Jesus was experiencing in the garden in his prayer against temptation. Not my will, but yours be done, Father. The Father's will was to crush him and make him ill. The Father desired to put to death his son. For Abraham, his son was spared, Isaac, in foreshadowing to point to Christ in Christ, the father actually goes through and kills his son. But he does it knowing that he will be resurrected and knowing it will be for the good of mankind who is undeserving. We are the rebels in this passage. Jerusalem is the rebels in this passage. So the Lord desired to crush him, to make him ill. Once restitution is made, he will see descendants and enjoy long life. So how can you be crushed but also live a long life? Well, if you're resurrected, that would make a lot of sense. The Lord's purpose will be accomplished through him. Jesus fulfills every prophecy. He is the fulfillment of the Daniel prophecies that would speak of the anointed one to be crushed. We're going to see in this text in just a minute. Having suffered, he will reflect on his mark work uh, in other sense that Jesus, according to Isaiah 53, after the trial that he has to go through his suffering and his death, it will be worth it. And we see that it was the greatest, uh, most purposeful suffering that anyone has ever endured. And he says, I will assign him a portion with the multitudes. He will divide the spoils of victory with the powerful. What's in shadow here is that Jesus is doing this on purpose. The father is doing this on purpose. So it looks like Satan is winning. Satan is sifting the apostles. Jesus, the son of God himself is being captured and about to be unlawfully tried and put to death. Everything in the world seems to be collapsing and wrong and evil. But God, who is sovereign, can, can reconcile the evil free choices of mankind with his omnipotent and omniscient will to accomplish his purposes. And again, we see because he willingly submitted to death, Isaiah 53, 12, and was numbered with the rebels when he lifted up the sin of many and intervened on behalf of the rebels. Jesus willingly submitted to death. He wasn't trying to fight back. He wasn't calling his disciples to fight, to fight back on his behalf. He, he came to give his life and ultimately uh, in fulfillment with prophecy, not only that we've read through here, but also the prophecy we're talking about in part one concerning the direct overlap with the Passover sacrifice as Jesus is what the Exodus foreshadowed with both the Hallels and also the Exodus tradition. He is the Passover lamb whose blood, just like the blood on the doors, uh, who Christ's blood will now make clean and allow God to pass over our sin because his wrath will be poured out on the Christ. Um, so we could talk about this for hours. I'm going to keep going. I try to keep my videos around an hour or so. So we'll keep going. Day after day I was with you, Jesus says, teaching in the temple courts, yet you did not arrest me. But this has happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. The way in which he would be arrested, as we just discussed in those few verses in Isaiah 53, that was prophecy concerning Christ. And so for him to be openly arrested during the day would not have fulfilled that prophecy, but rather God to show his foreordained plan, his predestination of the type of death that Jesus would suffer. For that reason, 
This has happened so that, as Jesus explains to them, the scriptures would be fulfilled. It says in verse 50, Then all the disciples left him and fled. Catch this, guys. You got to catch this. Not only Peter more than once said that, Jesus, I will not abandon you for anything. Not only that, but all of the disciples against Jesus's prophecy said, you know what? We're not going to leave you. We're not going to abandon you for anything. And they assured him and Jesus, he didn't entrust his heart to them. He knew he prophesied. He said, look, he can, he rebuked that. He said, you all will. And, and they were so sure of themselves as we talked about in part one of Mark 14, but here's, here's when the rubber meets the road. This is what happened. Look, Jesus says, actually, I'm here to give up my life. And the, the disciples say, whoa, I don't want to be a part of that. I'm not ready to just lay down my life, Jesus. And so they don't. They abandon him. We see that Peter's willing to fight and to die, but he's not willing to, to give himself up to be arrested and to be put to death willingly. So he's willing to be put to death with a fight, but he's not being willing to be put to death willingly without a fight. And so it says all the disciples against their word, against Jesus' prophecy, which he had repeated over them, um, they all left him and fled. And that's why he wanted them to pray. That's why he wanted them to stay up awake all that night and pray because they were about to commit a a grievous sin and it was peaking in that moment and they all just weren't willing. But this was all in prophecy, all in fulfillment of the scriptures. Also, Mark contains this verse. It's very interesting. It says, a young man was following him, following Jesus, wearing only a linen cloth. Now the linen cloth, think of it like underwear. It's something you would have worn under your outer garment. Um, if you had money or, or at least moderately well off, um, poor people probably wouldn't have had these, but it says a young man was following him wearing only a linen cloth. So all the disciples have abandoned him, but there's this young man that's following Christ as they're dragging him back to, uh, go under this court, um, hearing it says they tried to arrest him. This, this random young man that was following in his underwear, they tried to arrest him. But he ran off naked, leaving his linen cloth behind. So what we can gather from this text is that this young man, who's unidentified in in the Gospel of Mark, John Mark, um, this young man is following them in his undergarments, if you will, and they try to arrest him. They seemingly get a hand on him, on his clothes, and he literally escapes by like ripping out of his clothes and he runs off naked. It's shameful. This was probably even more shameful. It's shameful today if someone's running around naked, but even in their day, it was extremely more shameful probably. But he runs off naked, not wanting to be captured, leaving his linen cloth behind. Now, what's really interesting, um, with the early church fathers, there's just about um, unanimous agreement that this young man who's unidentified in Mark chapter 14 is actually the very writer of this gospel, John Mark, as a young boy. Now, he's writing this gospel um, a good maybe decade or so after this event, but um, 
at the time of its occurrence, he would have been a very young boy, possibly 14 years old. I just want to read this from the Orthodox Study Bible Companion. It says, St. Mark then narrates the story of a certain young man who was then following along with Jesus, having put on a linen cloth over his nakedness. Most people wore wool for their outer garment. The use of linen indicated a greater wealth. Also, the fact that the young man had nothing on beneath the cloth indicated that he had dressed hurriedly to follow Jesus and his disciples as they left their upper room to go pray in the Garden of Gethsemane probably tagged along secretly and uninvited in the ensuing melee. They seize him. He squirms away from their grasp and left behind the linen cloth and fled naked. The panic of his escape reflects the panic of all the disciples. They had promised to guard and defend him, but when the moment for action came after a brief and ineffective lashing out, they all abandoned him to flee their own lives. Um, They put in parentheses in this book, we may ask in passing, who was that nameless young man? The most probable answer, and the one long favored by the fathers, is that it was St. Mark himself. As a young boy of perhaps 14 years, he may well have listened outside the door of his parents' upper room while Jesus and his apostles used it for their Passover supper and dressed hastily to follow them when he heard them leaving later that night. Like many young boys, he was keen to share an adventure, but found this adventure more than he had bargained for. It's kind of funny. Um, Also, the NET study Bible likewise had a similar note. The statement he ran off naked is probably a reference to Mark himself, traditionally assumed to be the author of this gospel. Why he was wearing only an outer garment and not the customary tunic as well is not mentioned. Um... I just wanted to say, um, very likely, I think the Orthodox Bible Study Companion uh, quote that I read is most helpful here. It's very possible in, in the Gospel of Mark, without any context or tradition, all we see is that there's this random young man um, that's still following Jesus, but seemingly um, he could have been somehow connected to the house um, in which they met to share the Last Supper whether he was actually in the room or maybe he was a part of the house or maybe he was outside of the house and seeing Jesus and all the disciples leave, it seems like he followed them all the way to the garden of the Gethsemane. Again, this was taking place in the very middle of the night. So he may have just thrown on his PJs, if you will, his undergarments and followed them hiding in the woods. And then upon seeing him arrested, he's still following, but uh, obviously the angry mob of soldiers and people with swords and clubs um, were very aware of the surroundings. They picked up on what the disciples previously maybe didn't, which was that someone was following them, and upon trying to arrest them, they miss him. So just a very interesting story. Um, it's a, it's an interesting thing to think that maybe John Mark himself, while traditionally not understood as a witness to um, the Christ and the teachings of Christ, maybe in some way had a, a very present connection uh, to them. Yeah, although it's not traditionally understood that way, it's it's quite a large possibility. Um, so I would tend to lean with the church fathers here. I, I think this is an interesting tradition and wouldn't have a reason to not believe it. So anyways, um, just wanted to mention that. Picking up with verse 53, it says, Then he led Jesus to the high priest. Excuse me, then they led Jesus to the high priest, this angry mob. And all the chief priests and elders and experts in the law came together. 
Now, before we breeze through this, I just want to mention again, as we covered in Mark chapter, um, I can't remember the chapter. In in a preceding chapter, um, a majority of it was dedicated to the parable of the vineyard keeper. And I hope you watch that video. It's really important. But what I want to say here about that is that it's interesting that everyone that's supposed to be somebody is completely missing the Messiah. The disciples, Jesus' own disciples, Jesus' own inner circle, they're, they're misunderstanding everything. The, the chief priests, the scribes, the, the people who are in charge of keeping the Torah, of enforcing the Torah, they have radically misunderstood Jesus' entire ministry. Um, as we're going to see that unpacked a little bit more. But just recognize the irony here. That's what I want you to see. The high priests, the chief priests, the elders, experts in the law, these should should have been the people that they saw Jesus from afar and and heralded him in as the son of the, the vineyard keeper parable um, so profoundly emphasizes. But rather what takes place is instead of them recognizing him, they are the very ones to put him to death. Again, as the parable speaks, as Jesus predicted before his death. But uh, they all come together. The, the angry mob has brought Jesus before them. Verse 54, it says, And Peter had followed him from a distance up to the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. So Peter, we're not really sure his motivations. We're not sure if he's going to try and break Jesus out or if he's just waiting around because he wants to see what's going to take place to his master. We do know that Peter absolutely loved Jesus. Um, but uh, he's standing around and he's warming himself in the middle of the night. Verse 55, it says, The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find anything. Now, I just wanted to note here, it doesn't say that all of the chief priests, it does seem to be that it was the entirety of the Sanhedrin um, so there may be room for some people that would have been supporters of Jesus, but because this court convened in the middle of the night, uh, maybe it was a stacked court in the sense that only the people who would agree with them would have been there to hear it. I just wanted to read a quick note to give you a, a legal backdrop of what's really going on. Uh, this is again from the Orthodox Bible Study Companion, the Gospel of Mark, the Suffering Servant. Mark summarizes the events connected with Christ's trial, which took up the entire night. Again, the festival, um, the Passover tradition would have occurred maybe close to ending around 11 at night, somewhere in the, in the night. And then Jesus is praying for a few hours and then they come to get him. Although night trials of capital offenses were strictly speaking illegal, the Sanhedrin no doubt felt that they had no choice as a volatile and occupied territory, Israel did not have the right to exercise the death penalty. That legal privilege was jealously guarded by the Romans. They alone had the right to execute criminals. If Jesus were to be condemned to death, he must be found guilty by a Roman court, that is, by the governor Pontius Pilate. Also, he may be found guilty and condemned quickly, before the populace had time to be mobilized by his disciples in his defense. That meant that he must be brought to Pilate for trial as soon as day broke and the courts were open. And that meant that he must be found guilty by a Jewish court 
before daybreak. Thus, even though night trials were uh, contrary to their legal custom, he must be tried at night anyways. So to break that down, if you didn't catch it, the Sanhedrin, they're crafty and they're, they're smart and, and they are figuring out a way to illegally uh, get the job done. And so this involves illegally arresting him, falsely accusing him. This also involves doing this all in the middle of the night for a couple reasons. One, according to uh, their tradition and, and the way the, the legal system was set up in their day, Jesus would first, if he was to be put to death, and that's what they wanted and that's what they did, for him to be put to death, they would first have to have a court hearing amongst themselves, amongst Jewish law, the Sanhedrin. And then once the Sanhedrin condemned him to death, then because they were conquered by Rome, they must bring that before the Roman government, whose authority it was to ultimately put Christ to death because they they kept for themselves that supreme right. And so the Sanhedrin what they're trying to do is bypass the crowds. The crowds love Jesus. Thousands upon thousands of people have been fed by Jesus. Thousands upon thousands seemingly were healed by Jesus, taught by Jesus, led by Jesus for years. And amidst the time that this is taking place, according to prophecy and according to the event and the account, this is taking place when more people than ever for this Passover tradition are in town. And so what they have to do, they have to do it in the middle of the night so they can pre-approve this um, death penalty. And then after they get it pre-approved, they've got to rapidly, from the very time that uh, the courts open in the morning, get Jesus there before anyone can recognize what happened while everyone's sleeping. And so they're trying to slip past the crowds, the disciples, because if there was enough crowd, if it was majority vote, or if there was enough that it would have started a riot, then they wouldn't have to worry about um, sneaking him in there. In other words, um, if there was enough people that supported Jesus, there's a very likely possibility that he wouldn't have been put to death. And if he was tried publicly during the day, he may not have been condemned to death. Likewise, if he was condemned in the middle of the day, even if the Sanhedrin and the chief priests and scribes all these guys, these elders, even if they didn't condemn him, maybe there would be enough of the populace to stand before the Roman government to then um, cut this off before it reached the death penalty. But the way in which they go about this is they can bypass illegally the whole system, but they get it done just enough that he can still be put to death. So there's a real craftiness. I hope you catch this for what's going on. So Peter's warming his hands. He had followed from a distance up to the high priest's courtyard because, again, the high priest, he's not just a pastor, if you will. I'm going to use our language to talk to you. He's not just a pastor in the sense, or a priest in a sense, but he's also um, a ruling authority with legal. So he's probably a rich man. Um, I've, I've had the grand opportunity of actually going um, inside of his house um, that's still there in Israel, and, and seemingly the holding cell in which Jesus would have been held, uh, a little room um, underneath. And so, you know, the, their chief priest wasn't just um, a, a Bible teacher. He was also um, a lawyer and, you know, many things. Um, so don't, 
don't mix the covenants there. Understand his role. Peter had followed him from a distance up to the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find anything. Many gave false testimony against him, but their testimony did not agree. So according to Old Testament law, um, people are only condemned to death by two or three witnesses. So what's going on here is they have a plenty of false witnesses, but these false witnesses can't corroborate their stories correctly. They're given different testimonies. And so legally, even though everything they're doing is illegal, they can't just flat out that blatantly fly in the face of the law. So all these false testimonies are, are saying different things. And so because they don't agree, this isn't enough to condemn him. It's quite hard, if you haven't noticed, to condemn an innocent man, um, especially the God-man. Verse 57, it says, Some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. And they quote this, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days build another not made with his hands. Excuse me, not made with hands. And so this is actually, there's some truth in the sense that this was an actual thing that Jesus said, but maybe not in the way that they were conveying it. Um, These uh, reported words are interesting and refer to an utterance Jesus made in the temple some years earlier near the beginning of his ministry. Uh, This is found in John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus replied, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. Again, another thing that God was concealing in Jesus, now we can clearly understand. What he meant is that Jesus was going to be the one to destroy the temple. This is so deep. And I hope you've watched the Mark chapter 13 video. Even though it's two hours long, it's so worth your time. Jesus ultimately is the one to destroy the temple because he is the one who's going to sit at the right hand of the Father once he's Um, resurrected and ascends into heaven. So Jesus quite literally is the one who's going to destroy the temple, but not on earth, not with human hands or with human might, um, not with an earthly kingly ministry, but rather with a heavenly kingly ministry. So when Jesus says, I'm going to destroy this temple and in three days rebuild it, he's talking about different things. He is talking about the destruction of the temple, but also he's paralleling what they're not catching is that he is the temple. And so his, his body is going to be destroyed, which is now according to the whole new Testament being built up. There's this new temple that's been built. And so in three days, the temple that's rebuilt is the body of Christ. And then he becomes the cornerstone for the, for the first resurrection, for the second resurrection and for all things to be built up in him. And so, again, this is another one of these things I could spend a lot of time on. I'm not going to, but what I want you to notice, this is so essential. It's important for your understanding of really everything in Mark for the rest of this, um, these last few chapters. It's important for Mark 13, 14, 15, and 16. And in the other Gospels, this would um, be relevant to other passages as well. But here's what you need to understand. In the Old Testament, The temple was vital, essential, commanded that you worship God at the prescribed temple. For the New Testament, the temple is now Christ, and we are now joining him as 
stones built upon the cornerstone of a new temple. So that's really important. Keep that in the back of your mind, even if you don't understand it completely. So again, back to the scene. It's the middle of the night. They're trying their hardest to figure out how to condemn Jesus, but they can't get their story straight. And so some of the false testimony, what they're quoting is that he's going to destroy the temple. And so they're trying to say, oh, he's going to do a violent protest or he's going to tear it down with an army. But that's not at all what Jesus was talking about. He was an apocalyptic preacher, which, by the way, whose prophecies came to pass. But uh, save that for Mark chapter 13. Go check out that video. So we heard him say, uh, this is the false testimony. I will destroy this temple made with hands and in three days uh, build another not with hands. And yet, even on this point, their testimony uh, did not agree. So according to verse 59, they're still struggling, even though this was something that Jesus taught, they're still struggling uh, to get their story straight. So with all these false accusations, it it says that uh, verse 60, then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, have you no answer? What is this that they are testifying against you? In verse 61, it says, but he was silent and did not answer. So, Again, this is in fulfillment of prophecy. We've already read this, but uh, just to briefly quote it, Isaiah 53, verse 7, he was treated harshly and afflicted, but he did not even open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughtering block, like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not even open his mouth. Now, again, the lamb, he is the Passover lamb. There's a reason why the Isaiah 53 and Passover and this event all correlate. It's all prophetically pointing to Christ. But what I want you to see here is that the only reason Jesus responds is so that he can affirm his deity. But other than that, um, he is not protesting them for the most part. Now, he does rebuke them because um, they're beating him and spitting on him and mocking him. Um, So he does stand up to them in that kind of a sense. But at the same time, ultimately, as he says in one of the synoptics, uh, Peter, you know, don't fight them because I could call down legions of angels to destroy them. This is not, you know, his purpose. So Jesus, while standing up to them, he's ultimately still offering his life. So that's what it means. But he was silent, did not answer. Um, He he understands that he is fulfilling prophecy and he is to... um, Take, take his beating like a man. And, uh, and this is in accordance with the Father's will, in accordance with prophecy. He says this. Now, this is exceptionally interesting, and I want you to capture this. Um, if you're still watching this video, um, I praise God for people like you who are interested in really learning your Bible. So he says, he was silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him, are you the Christ? the son of the blessed one. So again, they've understood his claims throughout his ministry. And according to Daniel chapter nine, they are looking for in their time period, the Messiah. They know that there's a Messiah to come. And that's what Christ means. It means Messiah. So Jesus Christ means Jesus, the Messiah, because there's many Jesuses or Yeshua's or Joshua's, but there's only one Christ. And so he asks him point blank because Jesus isn't responding to all these false accusations. He says, are you the Christ, the son 
of the Blessed One. So that's what he means by Christ. Again, they, they had a misconception of, of what the Messiah would be because they had conflated the two comings of Christ into one because they didn't account for the separ- separation we find in those prophecies. But what I want you to see here second, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus addressed this earlier. They were all looking for the Son of David to come. And so Jesus affirms that, yes, he is the son of David in a sense, but ultimately he's more powerful than David. And this really upset everyone because he wasn't what they pictured. He wasn't what they were looking for, what they wanted, but he was what they needed, even though they didn't know. Again, the high priest questioned him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? That's what he's asking him, the son of David. The, the coming herald king, Messiah. Jesus says, right, verse 62, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, this is a really important verse. Jesus here is quoting two verses. The first one he's quoting is Psalm 110, and the second one he's quoting is a passage from Daniel chapter 7. I just want to point you quickly to uh, the verse in the Psalms. Uh, The study note from the NET says an allusion to Psalm 110, verse 1. This is a claim that Jesus shares authority with God in heaven. Those present may have thought they were his judges, but in fact, the reverse was true. Psalm uh, 110, this is something that's quoted repeatedly in the Gospels. We see this over and over and over. Here is the Lord's proclamation. Again, also need I remind you, this is the part of the Hallels um, or, or right preceding it as they would read um, 113 through 118. And, and uh, this is something they would quote as well. And this was quoted earlier in Jesus' ministry. One Chapter 110, Psalm uh, verse 1. Here's the Lord's proclamation to my Lord. Sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So we saw this debated out earlier in uh, the preceding chapters concerning David. But the basic idea is that the one to come would be one who uh, was behind David. But as we see in the Psalms that David was hinting at is that the one to come after him would excel above him. And so when, when the high priest asks, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand. There's a couple things going on. He's saying that you will see him, Jesus, sitting at the right hand of the power. Now, what the power means, it's a reference to Yahweh. The The Jewish people are so reverent to the name Yahweh, and rightly so, but so reverent to the point that um, they wouldn't use the vowels of Yahweh. It would just be spelled um, Y-H-W-H. And likewise, um, often they wouldn't even reference uh, the name Yahweh, but instead would call him other things out of fear, and, and maybe a healthy fear of, of blaspheming the name of Yahweh. And so they would call him different things. So when he says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power, the power is, is capital P. It's in a reference to Yahweh and coming on, uh, excuse me, coming with the clouds of heaven. Uh, 
So the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power, this is really in reference to two things. One, what we just read of Psalm 110 of Jesus being the heralded Messiah in confirmation to the Old Testament texts and prophecies. But seated at the right hand of the power speaks to, as the Psalms say, making all of his enemies his footstool. And so I wanted to read you a note here and then point you to Daniel. Um, they kind of just affirm what I said in the uh, NET study Bible. The expression of the right hand of the power is a circumlocution. However you say that word for referencing to God, such indirect references um, to God were common in first century Judaism out of reverence for the divine. Kind of like I was saying. And then uh, coming with the clouds of heaven. Again, this is a prophecy from Daniel chapter uh, 7 verse 13. I just want to point you there again. If you haven't watched them, it's really important that you understand the prophecies of Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 9. I did summary videos of those in a playlist on my channel. You can check those out. Um, also, these are important for understanding the Olivet Discourse, which is Mark chapter 13. But I just want to read to you Daniel chapter 7 verse 13, which is prophecy um, which Jesus is saying is about to be fulfilled before them. Verse 13, Daniel 7. I was watching in the night visions, and with the clouds of the sky, one like a son of man was approaching. He went up to the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. To him was given ruling authority, honor, and sovereignty. All peoples, nations, and language groups were serving him. His authority is eternal and will not pass away. His kingdom will not be destroyed. Now, this is a prophecy that Christ is going to fulfill with his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension and his seating at the right hand of the Father. So this is a, a, a reference as Jesus said, you'll see me uh, seated at the right hand of the power. Again, this is another reference to Yahweh here in this verse. He went up to the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given ruling authority. This is sitting at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. It's the same exact thing they're talking about. Jesus is referencing this prophecy and saying, I am the fulfillment of this. Now, another thing I want to mention, which is extremely important, I probably couldn't overstate the significance of this either, of what I'm about to tell you. It's that in ancient Judaism, preceding the time of Christ, they had a doctrine of the two powers in heaven. Um, there's even been modern scholarship which has referenced this. There's a good book written. I can't remember the name of the man. Uh, but speaking of this doctrine that we find not only in Daniel, uh, namely chapter 7, the part we just read, but also this is found in other places such as Ezekiel. But what we get in the Old Testament text is this concept of a dual power in heaven. You have the Ancient of Days here in this text, which is a clear reference to God, to Yahweh. But at the same time, you have this Son of Man character who is given equal ruling authority and that all people's uh, nations, languages serve him or worship him and that his authority and his kingdom will last forever. So you have this concept in the Old Testament. So for those who would say that, that uh, you know, the Trinity is only in the New Testament, that's just not what we see in the Old Testament. 
And many people would point to Genesis and the early chapters of let us make men our own image. I don't know if that's the best text. It could be a reference to the uh, heavenly council of angelic beings. I'm not entirely sure, but it's not a clear reference. This, however, on the other hand, along with a few other passages, this is an exceedingly clear reference to more than one uh, being within the Trinity. So we have one God who is Yahweh and three persons who make up the the uh, Trinitarian Godhead. And so this is a very important reference. And um, this doctrine, the two powers in heaven, it was a doctrine that was taught and that was extinguished with the life of Christ. And the reason for that is because um, the Jews who didn't accept Christ as the Messiah were so frustrated at, at anything other than a strict, clear monotheism that because of this, they had to reject even their own texts, like this passage in Daniel, which speaks to two equal ruling authorities within heaven. And so for this reason, because the coming of Jesus as the Messiah, who affirmed this doctrine and said, I am the fulfillment of this, instead of accepting him as Messiah and Savior and co-regent with Yahweh, with the Father, instead they just altogether reject all of this. And this is something that is not spoken of in Jewish communities, or if it is spoken of, it's twisted to fit some other narrative other than what it actually means. So I just wanted to share that it's really important that you understand the Trinity and its its concepts and its foreshadowings in the Old Testament, because this is a very clear foreshadowing of the two powers in heaven. And so Jesus is bringing this somewhat muddy text, if you will, somewhat confused text of, of the Shema that says, the Lord our God is one, right? That's very clear. And then here you got Daniel, who everyone regards as a prophet, saying things like, there's the son of man approaching the ancient of days is escorted. He's escorted before him and he's given ruling of power. So they probably held this text in tension and have this concept, as I said, in ancient Judaism of the two powers in heaven. But with the coming of Christ, had to snuff it out and extinguish it because they wouldn't accept the, the man who fulfilled these prophecies. So that's really important. Just wanted to pass that along and um, point that out. So let's go back to Jesus and again, I know this is a longer video. Um, I'm hoping to attract the kind of audience that is interested in every nook and cranny of Scripture, who trusts that Jesus said not a single jot or tittle will pass away. Um, the kind of person, and so uh, again, um, I'm not trying to skip over this, this vital content. So again, the high priest questioned him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? We talked about what that what they're saying. Verse 62, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So he kind of merges Psalm 110 verse 1 and Daniel uh, chapter 7 uh, verse 13, really that whole little section we just read about. He kind of merges that together and he says, yeah, and it's more than that. And so it's not only that he's the Messiah, but he is he is co-regent and co-ruler with Yahweh. And this is blasphemous, right? According to their mind and their understanding, which is wrong, as they are wrong about many things. They're wrong about Sabbath. They're wrong about um, 
their traditions and practices and customs. They're wrong about the, the coming of the Messiah conflating the two into one. They're wrong about so much. And they're so confused. And Jesus is just flat out telling them, and it's because of this that he's put to death. I just wanted to reference another helpful study note in the Suffering Servant Orthodox Bible Studying Companion. He said, they say, uh, the one who is the truth could only tell the truth for silence here would have been taken for denial. I myself am, he affirms, uh, he was indeed the promised Messiah. More than this, this claim would be vindicated by God himself, for they would see him sitting on the right hand of power. So Jesus prophesies to the Sanhedrin that you're going to see this, this take place of God himself and coming with the clouds of heaven. Again, Psalm 10, Daniel 7, 13. By quoting these scriptures as referring to himself, Jesus was claiming in the strongest way possible that he was the true Messiah. His claim was no mere self-promotion. The all-powerful God himself would vindicate his claim and bring him to his throne, placing him on the right hand as Lord of all. Again, I wouldn't say I understand this fully, but my basic understanding is that the fulfillment of the prophecies that we find in the Olivet Discourse in Mark chapter 13 And what we see here that Jesus is saying, you, he's telling the Sanhedrin, you're going to see this take place, is another reason why I don't project what Jesus said would take place in that generation in Mark 13 into another generation, but rather Jesus is telling them that they will see it take place. And so I think the way we understand the cosmic um, disturbances that we find in the Olivet Discourse, I think that's or we got to be really careful to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture and allow those um, previous prophecies that say the same exact thing we've seen in Ezekiel and Isaiah um, interpret the prophecy of Christ. And so the reason I'm saying all this, if I lost you, we need to understand what Jesus means by him taking up authority, what he means by making all of his enemies his footstool. And I think this takes place with his resurrection, I think this takes place with his ascension, and I think this takes place with the destruction of the temple. By Jesus being resurrected, he gets the stamp, the greatest, greatest stamp of approval of Yahweh upon his life. There's no one like him. Who, who is, he is the firstborn among all. He is the, the first resurrected one who's resurrected into the new, into the first resurrection. Not resurrected like Lazarus who would die again, but resurrected eternally. He is the firstborn among the dead in that sense. And so what I'm trying to labor here in verse 32 is that the way we need to understand Christ so that we don't make him a liar when he says, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's not talking about the second coming of Christ, which we all look forward to as Orthodox Christians. He's not talking about that because he says to the high priest, you're going to see this take place. What he's talking about is the stamp of approval in the resurrection. That's how we know he, he has the authority of God. He's the co-regent with God. The second thing is his ascension. And, and right after his ascension, he sits at the right hand of the Father. And so when he says, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand, he's speaking of his ascension. He's speaking of his resurrection. And lastly, coming with the clouds of heaven 
it seems like he's referencing the judgment of the destruction of the temple, the, the ending of the age, the punishment of God's people of Israel with, with a, a smoke that rises up forever and ever. As right now, I understand what that's saying in Revelation. And forgive me if you don't see it that way, uh, grace and peace. Um, but, but understand, that's, that's what I'm understanding him to, to mean here. Um, and because he, he caricatures this by saying, look, you're going to see this t- take place. And in, in, in here in Mark 14 and Mark 13, he's saying, your generation is going to witness this. All of these things um, is what he's saying. So Daniel 7, 13 is speaking of uh, the authority of God and the authority of God in the God-man Jesus Christ. And his authority is shown by him coming to destroy his temple. And he destroys his temple. And therefore, he comes on the clouds of heaven, uh, just like is described of Yahweh in the Old Testament. He is, he is the one with authority to judge. He is one with authority to do that. And he did in 70 AD. Um, we'll continue on with 14, verse 63. After hearing this, it says, Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your verdict? They all condemned him as deserving death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to strike him with their fists, saying, Prophesy. The guards also took him and beat him. Lastly, we close with this story. It says um, in verse 66. Now, while Peter was below in the courtyard, so as all these things are taking place in the judging court, Peter is still warming himself by the fire in the middle of the night, trying to keep a close eye on Jesus, but not getting too close because he doesn't want to get caught. Now, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the high priest's slave girls came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked directly at him and said, you also or with that Nazarene Jesus. And in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy, verse 68, but he denied it. I don't even understand what you're talking about, is what Peter replied with. Denial of the Savior, denial of Jesus. It says, then he went out to the gateway and a rooster crowed. Remember, Jesus said that there would be multiple rooster crows. So he does the first denial, the rooster crows, and he still doesn't recognize. When the slave girl saw him, she began again to say to the bystanders. So she accused him, he denies it. Now she accuses him in front of a group of people. And she says, this man is one of them. And it says verse 70, but he denied it again. A short time later, the bystanders again said to Peter, you must be one of them because you are also a Galilean. Verse 71, then he began to curse, seemingly using exceedingly foul language. Then he began to curse and he swore with an oath, which is also breaking Old Testament covenant and law, um, a, a deep sin. Then he began to curse and he swore with an oath. I do not know this man you are talking about. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time. And then Peter remembered what Jesus had said to him. So he didn't catch it with the first 
crow of the rooster. He was so caught up in denying Christ and, and fear of his life, fear of his death. Um, he curses, swears with an oath. I do not know this man you're talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And as soon as a, that second rooster crowed, it says, then Peter remembered what Jesus had said to him. And here's the prophecy. Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And so at the second rooster crow, he had denied to the slave girl, to the slave girl attesting before the bystanders twice, and then third to the bystanders accusing. And so that third denial had already taken place. And then the second crow of the rooster takes place. And as soon as that rooster crows, it says, and he broke down and wept, or he, he wept, um, as the Greek would say, he wept deeply. Um, you got to think he he's temporarily tried to forget all about Jesus because he's just trying to save his life. And then he hears this rooster crow. And what does he remember? He remembers him telling Jesus, Jesus, you're wrong. I'm going to do anything to stand up for you, to die for you. He remembers Jesus saying, no, Peter, you're really not. You're really not. You're actually going to deny me. Actually, here's this prophecy. Actually, you are going to deny me three times before the two crows of the rooster. And so that's what he does, and that's what takes place. And the second that that uh, second crow of the rooster, Peter recognizes it and can imagine weeps bitterly because he's betrayed his Savior, just like Judas. Um, but what we'll see, thankfully, is a repentance from Peter. That's all for Mark chapter 14, part two. Forgive me if it's a longer video. Um, I try not to skip over content. Um, I pray this blesses you. Again, this is on podcast if you're interested in watching that way. If you like this kind of content, um, I'd encourage you to subscribe and click the notification bell if you'd like to receive an update whenever I release a video. Also, there's been multiple playlists of books of the Bible that I've gone through. This is just another one in a long list of videos. So I'd encourage you to check that out if uh, you just click this as a one-off. Pray God blesses you. Hope to see you for Mark chapter 15. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.